Hi, welcome back to Green Fairy Tales. I have an interview to share with you today that I recorded with Brian Robinson of the Wormwood Society in January of 2020. And we all know what happened right after that. So check out this interview and know that some of the things that we talked about didn't happen because of the pandemic and some of them did the world changed but i think you'll love this interview anyway here we go before we do i just want to share one quote from our conversation listen to this right exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the thing a lot of people are surprised when it's made properly and they know now, hey, I can, if, if this is too strong for me, I can add more water or I can add some sugar mm-hmm. and they can basically make it to their own, their own tastes. And a lot of people do, they end up liking it. There's, you know, I'd say one in one in every 10 people that I bring to a, you know, a master's class just end up not really caring for it. But um, there's also four or five out of those 10 that are like, I've never had this before and I really like it. Yeah, I had a friend recently say to me, oh, I don't want to try your absinthe. I don't like anise at all. And then I was making some and I saw him again and he said, well, maybe I should just have a taste. And so I gave him a taste and he started to hand it back to me and he said, hang on a second. And he had another taste and then he had another taste. And I was like, just take the glass and go. And he's like, okay, thanks. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing what people can find out when they actually, you know, open their minds and, and decide to try it. Hi, and welcome to episode one. Today, we're going to talk about what absinthe really is, and I have a special guest that will be joining us in a little bit. Did you know that to date, there is no legal definition of what absinthe is? Any idea what this leads to? That's right, a lot of confusion. I'm often asked, what is absinthe? Absinthe is a distilled spirit that must contain the trinity of herbs, wormwood, anise, and fennel. It must be a spirit and not a liqueur that is unsweetened in the bottle. It must not be artificially colored, and it must be strained of all solids, so no floating herbs or anything in the bottle. There are several types of absinthe. There's true absinthe, or absinthe superior, and there's what we call faux synth and crap synth. It's hard for the consumer to know which is which, and unfortunately, a lot of people try bad stuff first. They get the wrong impression about absinthe and think they hate it. This just breaks my heart, as the Green Fairy can be so delicious. I mean, after all, there are reasons why it was so wildly popular in Europe in the late 1800s. I have a special guest joining us today to discuss the different types of absinthe and how you can be sure you are drinking a true absinthe. Welcome. My guest today is Brian Robinson, who I met through the Wormwood Society. Brian, would you go ahead and give yourself a quick little introduction? My name is Brian Robinson. I am the review editor and media liaison for the Wormwood Society. Uh, I've been with the Wormwood Society now for about 16 years um, and have been studying and drinking and uh, reviewing absinthe for 23 years. A lot longer than it's been legal in this country. So what got you into absinthe in the first place? Uh, So actually, when I was studying abroad uh, in Madrid, 
Um, Spain is one of the countries where absinthe was never banned. Um, and I was at a party in a suburb of Madrid called Mahadonda. And um, there were a bunch of people who brought their own brands of absinthe. And in fact, um, home distillation is also legal uh, in Spain. So there were a lot of interesting things being passed around that night. Um, and I went to the party and people were handing me these things here, try this, try that. And, uh, one of them, um, which at the time I had no idea, but, um, found out later on that night that it was absinthe. And this was in 1997. And at, at that point I was a college student. I'd literally never even heard of absinthe. So, um, <laughs> I, you know, I was like, I love this. This tastes amazing. I'm going to bring some of this back when I go back to the States. They started explaining to me, well, you really can't because it's banned in the States. And, and that kind of just led me down the rabbit hole of uh, learning about absinthe and why it was banned and, and really why it shouldn't be banned and all that kind of fun stuff. So that's interesting. You and I have, we have a similar history where I first had absinthe in November, late 96 at a party and it was banned and I just tasted it and fell in love with it and started researching it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, especially when you can come at it without any preconceptions. You know, there's a lot of people out there who start drinking absinthe because they think it's going to make you high or or make yeah. you see things or, you know, whatever. But that doesn't really happen. And uh, I didn't expect it to happen. So I was just able to enjoy it for what it was. Exactly. Right. I mean, I still get asked today, but you do, too. Will it make me hallucinate? All the time. Absolutely. I mean, you still even see it in the absinthe groups on uh, on Facebook or on the forums or whatever. People come in and they're like, what's the highest Thujone content absinthe I can buy? And uh, <laughs> you definitely have had those discussions many, many times. Briefly, what, what do you tell them when they when they ask that? Like, what's your what's your go to answer? How do you explain that? So really, I mean, uh, my elevator speech uh, type of, um, you know, 30 second explanation is. Um, that that was basically nothing but propaganda from the Belle Epoque uh, that kind of survived and then was uh, survived throughout the um, the 1900s. And then, you know, come the late 90s, marketers started really seizing on those uh, those propagandistic type of, of claims and started using that as almost a marketing ploy to get people to start drinking this stuff that really wasn't absinthe, but kind of capitalizing on the rave crowds and that type of thing. It lets people down sometimes, uh, and you might lose a few, uh, you know, a few people who might potentially be looking to drink it for that purpose. But that's not really the type of people that we're looking to get anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I tell people that you know there are other things that that's what the effect you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of other things that you can you can get that from. Why do you think it had a resurgence in the '90s before it became legal again? A, you had these producers of, you know, these, these knockoff, um, you know, completely fake brands of absinthe from Eastern Europe, who, again, really capitalized on those misconceptions about absinthe and started marketing it as, hey, here's this new drink that's, you know, people were drinking it back in the late 1800s, and they were going crazy and seeing things and hallucinating. Uh, <laughs> and it sure. tastes like crap. So we're going to set it on fire so that you don't even uh, you don't even think about how it tastes. You're just going to look at how cool it is and just want to take shots of it. Um, and I think that definitely started to, um, you know, bring people around to 
um, absinthe, even though they weren't really drinking absinthe, they were hearing that this was absinthe, and then some of them were actually doing some more research about it. Um, but then, of course, you had, you know, directors of, of movies like Dracula and From Hell and Road Trip who utilized, um, you know, some of the mysteries and, and uh, of absinthe to, you know, maybe enhance their, uh, their movies a little bit. Um, Moulin Rouge, you know, those types of movies. Um, and, you know, obviously that did propagate some of the, the, the misconceptions, but at the same time, it also did bring um, some attention to, to absinthe as a category. So let's talk about what a real absinthe is, what a true absinthe is. Uh, I know that we've all talked about the difference between true absinthe, absinthe superior, faux synths, and crab synths. Can you explain mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Sure. So faux synth and crab synth really are, are, for the most part, interchangeable. But I do kind of look at it with a little bit of a distinction. Uh, faux synth really is something that that has absolutely nothing to do with what real absinthe is. It could be, you know, a, a, a rot gut, you know, grain neutral spirits with, um, uh, you know, with food coloring in it um, and maybe some essences or some essential oils added to it. Uh, really absolutely no um, resemblance to, to authentic absinthe. Uh, whereas crapsinth can be that, but it could also just be a really poorly made absinthe that maybe the, the producer tried their best but didn't turn out too well or maybe they uh tried to make an absinthe but their impressions of absinthe were based on that that fake stuff from the eastern european countries um and so their brands just ended up not turning out that well um whereas a good high quality absinthe you know like an absinthe superior or um or any of the other you know high quality types of brands nowadays since since superior really isn't actually a legal category anymore um, what we look for at the Wormwood Society and other absinthors, something that is a, a product where you take a base alcohol, whether it be grape base or potato or sugar beet or whatever, it doesn't matter what the base alcohol really, as long as it's a relatively neutral spirit, you then soak the main herbs, which, you know, we want to use the Holy Trinity, which would be uh, Grand Wormwood, Fennel and Anise green anise specifically, um, soak those as well as maybe some other supporting herbs in that base alcohol, let that quote unquote digest, and then redistill that product from there. So uh, a properly made absinthe has to use the primary, the, the Holy Trinity, and has to be distilled. Um, once it comes off of the still, um, if you want to make a high quality brand, it has to be either uncolored which would basically be your Blanche style or Le Bleu style absinthe, where it has no color to it at all, or naturally colored with other herbs, such as Petite Wormwood, Melissa, Hyssop, those types of things, which would lend it that traditional green color. Uh, But the green color isn't coming from artificial means. It's coming from the chlorophyll um, that's actually in those herbs themselves. Um, You can also find Rouge style absinthe, which might be, um, colored with hibiscus or anato or uh, or other types of, uh, again, natural uh, herbs or flowers like that. A uh, little bit less traditional. There's really no historic evidence of any actual rouge absence uh, in existence during the Belle Epoque, even though there were um, posters for um, for those types of brands. We don't actually have any real evidence that they existed 
Um, oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. So, but then, uh, you know, those are kind of the major things, but then on top of that, you want to have specific qualities with that finished product too. One, it has to louche, which means it has to become cloudy when, you know, cold water is streamed into it. You want that louche to be opalescent. You don't want it so thick that it's like a glass of milk, but you also don't want it so thin that you can still see through it. Too thin means they didn't use enough anise. Uh, too thick means they might have used too much boosters in there. Um, you know, some distillers uh, kind of cheat a little bit and they use star anise, which isn't quite as high quality, has a little bit different flavor than green anise, but it also provides a huge punch to that uh, to that louche. So it needs to louche. Also, do not want to have sugar added to the uh, the bottle itself. So sugar should be at the discretion of the consumer, um, which is why absinthe has things like the spoons and drippers where you can actually put sugar on top of the slotted spoon and, and drip the water through that so that the sugar dissolves into the drink. But sugar should never actually be in the bottle itself. So if That would you... be more of a pastis, if I'm, if I'm correct about that, right? It could be a pastis, but pastis is, is actually predominantly a star anise-based beverage, but it would, it would technically be a liqueur. Um, so if it's got sugar in it, it would be a liqueur as opposed to a, you know, a, an actual neutral spirit. And then uh, the last thing is you know, alcohol content. Your, your traditional style absinths are going to run anywhere normally from 45 to 50% on the low end, mainly for uncolored absinths up to 72% on the top end. Uh, the reason why colored absinths typically are higher in alcohol content is because that helps to keep the color in suspension. Uh, if you have lower ABV, um, the particles of those that chlorophyll come out of suspension and it kind of just settles at the bottom and you have a lot of sediment at the bottom of the, the bottle itself. If you see anything that's typically uh, above 72%, um, they tend to be, you know, kind of marketing gimmick type of, uh, type of brands, anything below, you know, that 45 or 50% tends to again, be more like a cordial or a liqueur or something like that. Um, there, there are a few exceptions, especially on the higher end, like Eichelberger, uh, which is a brand out of Germany makes a brand that uh, is 80%. Uh, but it's actually still a, a very well-crafted, very tasty absinthe. There's a couple of others that are that are higher uh, ABV as well, but very few and far between. Most of the ones that you see above 72% are the gimmicks, and most of them end up being artificially colored and talking about how much thujone they have uh, and that type of stuff. And that's the last quality that we typically look at is if a producer is hyping the amount of thujone that they actually have in their product, it's normally not a good product. They're they're trying to bank on that, uh, on that gimmick and on that propaganda. Wow, fantastic! Thank you for explaining that. You went really in depth. I like that. So, just to highlight, I guess the the easiest way for a cocktail enthusiast to recognize a true absinthe would be the first way by the color. Make sure it's just not that horrific looking green. Correct. If it's radioactive looking, or if it's <laughs> black, or you know anything like that, you more than likely want to stay away. And it's very easy. If you look on the bottle itself, uh, especially bottles that are in the United States, it has to show on there if it's artificially colored at all. You'll see those terms FD&C, blue or red or yellow um, on the back of the label, and that's how you know. Stay away uh, from those. Yeah, definitely want to stay away from those. Yeah. And then what's happening with the designation superior? You mentioned that it was not being used anymore. Is there 
is there anything going on to legally define absinthe in America? Yes. So right now, the term absinthe superior is what's considered a fanciful name um, by the TTB, which basically just means it's, you know, it's part of the advertising of the brand itself. It's not an actual category of quality. However, the TTB did um, put out a request for uh, input from distillers and producers and, and people such as myself to get a better idea of what absinthe really should be because they are working um, on trying to codify um, absinthe. So we're obviously not going to get everything that we want if we want it to be as you know as traditional as possible. There's probably going to be some things in there that they're going to just be like, well, come on, guys, this, this is being a little too strict, uh, at least you know for the first time around. But you know, if we get anything that's going to say, you know, it's got to be distilled, it's got to be naturally colored, it's got to loosh, it's got to have the predominant flavors of wormwood and anise, I'd be happy with that as a starting point. Totally. So, but yeah, the, so we had some comment periods and um, uh, some of my colleagues like Ted Bro, who also produces, uh, he's, he's really big on the legislation side, but he also produces some of the best absinthe in the world. Um, he's been actually, you know, talking with, uh, with the TTB um, and with the panels uh, and to try to get those things pushed through. So hopefully we'll have some good news in the next few years. That's great. Yeah, he's really done a lot to help absinthe in this country. So just to get the record straight, absinthe in Europe and absinthe in America, same product. For the most part, yes. They're very minute details. And this is where a lot of the um, the whole school of quote-unquote haters that say that U.S. absinthe isn't real absinthe, this is what they're getting wrong. So the only major difference between the two is the amount of thujone that is allowed in the finished product. Now, technically, both are considered, in, in both the U.S. and E.U., legislation says it has to be thujone-free. The difference is simply, arbitrarily, the U.S. decided to pick 10 parts per million of thujone as their upper limit, whereas in the E.U., it's 35 parts per million. Now, what the again, what those kind of detractors are forgetting is that 35 and 10 are both still scientifically considered zero. So it makes no difference. <laughs> it's just, you know, some want to go through a little bit more stringent testing processes. The funny part about that process is that it's severely flawed. Um, and the TTB really doesn't have a very good way of testing Fujon. So you could send in two samples of literally the same product from the same bottle and get two separate readings. One could fail, one could pass. But in either case, Historically speaking, that number uh, in terms of Thujon content uh, is still in line with what most products from the Belle Epoque uh, were running in terms of the Thujon content. Studies have been done showing that um, for the most part, Thujon uh, was below those legal limits uh, even back then when they didn't even know, uh, you know about those types of legal limits. So any types of products that you say or that you see saying, oh, well, we've got you know, 300 parts per million or something. Again, they're not authentic absinthe. They're just trying to, to, to capitalize on the fact that people think that Thujon is some kind of recreational drug, which it really isn't anyway. Right. And then is there, there's a difference in Thujon between distilled wormwood and not distilled wormwood. Yes. Yeah, so to some degree, absolutely. Now, this is one of the funny things, and, and forgive me for, for getting even more nerdy than I already am, but when you're talking about 
Thujon content. There's a guy by the name of Wilfred Arnold, who was a, a scholar and a, a professor at the University of Kansas, I believe. It, uh, I believe he's still at the University of Kansas. He was doing a study on Vincent van Gogh, and he was writing this book on why Vincent van Gogh cut off his ear and um, his addiction to terpenes. Thujon is a terpene, but so is things like turpentine. And, you know, uh, Vincent van Gogh used to do things like suck on his paintbrushes, um, and he was addicted to, to those terpenes. Um, what Dr. Arnold did was he surmised that because wormwood has, you know, and again, this was based on his arbitrary uh, decision, has somewhere around 300 parts per million of thujone in the plant itself, he surmised that that is how much thujone was in a bottle of absinthe as well, which is completely wrong because thujone is a very heavy chemical. Um, and when you distill wormwood, the majority of those, what they call absinthins and, and things like, which are the bitter compounds in absinthe, but then also uh, the thujone, a lot of that stays behind in the pot. So what you're left with is substantially less thujone and substantially less bitterness in a distilled product versus just throwing a branch of, uh, of wormwood into a, a, a vat of alcohol and letting it soak. When I talked to Dr. Arnold about that and asked him how he came up with those numbers, I found out that he never actually did any chemical analysis on any brand of absinthe ever. You're kidding. So it was literally just, you know, a supposition that he made and, um, haven't talked to him since. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what he did was he tested the plants, whereas our federal government is testing our products, testing the actual absinthe. That's correct. Yep. Right, right. So there's, there's the difference in the numbers right there. And then once you soak it and turn it green naturally with the chlorophyll, you are throwing a little wormwood in there, but it's a different type of wormwood. It's the petite wormwood rather than the, um, or the pontica rather than the grand wormwood or the artemisia. That's correct. And, and Pontica tends to have lower levels of bitterness, number one, but also substantially lower levels of food. Well, there you go. Great. Oh, I, I love the nerding out, you know, I, I, <laughs> I do it too. I, I talk think. about this stuff for hours, as you can imagine. I know you and I probably both bore all our friends in the same exact way. Oh yeah. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about the current state of the Wormwood Society. You said you joined it about 16 years ago. Yeah. I would love to hear how you discovered it, why you joined it, um, and you know, it's just its trajectory and where it is now and, and what the future is for the Wormwood Society. It's always been a really great resource for me, and I've sent a lot of customers and other absinthe enthusiasts to it. It's just got great resources and reviews and community. That's what I really liked about it. So back when I was initially you know, studying absinthe, you know, back in the late nineties, I couldn't find anything. I mean, the, the, the internet at that point was relatively nascent. I mean, I was still an, you know, an AOL kid, uh, back in the day, I didn't hardly even use the internet when I was in college. Yeah. So I, I was, was using find... mostly Barnaby Conrad's book for, for my history, my absinthe history yeah. at the time too. Right, exactly. So I was looking at books. I was reading some of the books in Spanish libraries and that type of stuff. Um, but then when I got back to the States and, you know, I continued to do some research on it. Um, and I finally found the Wormwood Society around 2004. It might have even been a little bit earlier than that, but I think it was 2004. But it was, you know, a great resource. There was really at that point three dominant absinthe communities. Uh, there was the Loosh Lounge, which was more kind of um, banter type of forum. 
uh, not really much on a, like a main web page or anything like that. Uh, there was a favorite, which was run by David Nathan Maester at the time. He is the guy who wrote the uh, basically the Absinthe Encyclopedia. So there was a lot of really great information on their page and their forum as well uh, was a great place to get additional information. And then there was the Wormwood Society, which was you know still a great, great resource in terms of a lot of information. But the online forum side of things seemed to be a little bit more active, uh, a lot more members to it. Um, and I started, uh, you know, poking around in there and talking to people about absinthe and started posting my reviews in the forums. And at, at a certain point, um, you know, within a few months of me joining, um, I'd posted, you know, a hundred reviews of different products. Gwydion Stone was the founder of the Wormwood Society. And he'd asked me at that point to actually kind of head the review section because we were building, uh, you know, a public facing review site. Um, and he asked me to be the review editor, kind of all fell into place from there. So I've been, I think I've published almost 250 reviews on the site now. Um, and I've got probably another 250 different samples at home <laughs> still need to, uh, to review. Um, but the Wormwood Society itself, we've, we've gone through a few different iterations. The, um, you know, online forums as a whole have kind of, uh, dropped in popularity as things like Facebook and, and other types of groups like that have become more popular. We still have the forum, but you know a lot of that is transitioned to uh, the Wormwood Society group. Uh, we have a page and a group on Facebook uh, where a lot more of the discussions are taking place there. But we're actually working on revamping the um, uh, the review site with additional reviews. We're also going to be starting to review venues that serve absinthe uh, because there's a lot of them out there that, that don't do it well. Uh, mm -hmm. And we certainly recognize that, but we also want to recognize the ones that do do it well. Um, we're working on, uh, putting together a phone app that will allow people who are, you know, shopping for absinthe or see it on the back bar somewhere to be able to pull it up right on, right on their phone and have a real nice, uh, easy format to read, but then also to be able to submit reviews, uh, from their phone as well. Um, so, you know, there's lots of things that we're hoping to get, uh, up and running in the next year or so with the Wormwood Society and, um, you know, continue to bring the information to the masses. Well, that sounds great. It sounds like it's getting uh, getting with the interactive times, and uh, I think the app is a really cool idea. I'm actually considering putting a QR code on my uh, newest batch of bottles so that people can just you know zap it and see my website and get some recipes. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great way to do it. So how are you currently staying involved in the world of absinthe and hearing about new brands? Obviously still with the Wormwood Society, but then on top of that, I always have my feelers out, um, you know, finding any mentions of a new brand or something like that, reaching out and trying to buy a bottle so that I can uh, not only add that to my collection, but then also, um, you know, write a review. We're also, um, I'm on the board of directors of a new organization where we're trying to trying to put together an international absinthe festival every year this year on june uh, 5th and 6th we're having it in uh, a suburb of washington dc called middleburg and uh, so this will be our first year doing that but we're going to have multiple seminars um tables with the vendors um getting out samples of their brands we're going to have you know, a competition uh you know a dinner all different types of fun stuff. And hopefully that will continue to grow and we'll continue to, to house that and maybe even do it in several different places. Um, you know, each year have it in a different venue, uh, you know, New York city or, or new Orleans or something like that, just depending on how popular it becomes. Yeah. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And then of course I, I do my 
absent education classes. Um, I'm a part owner of the Columbia Room, which is a bar in D.C. We won the um, Best Cocktail Bar in the Country Award in 2017 from Tales of the Cocktail. But I have done um, multiple absent master's classes there. Um, and then I do them for bartenders guilds across the country as well. So those are fun ways to get in front of the people who are actually serving absinthe, uh, as well as consumers. So it's nice to be able to educate both sides of the spectrum. So where do you see absinthe going in the next five, 10 years? Do you think there'll be new trends, new ways of using it? Hopefully we will get a codification from the TTB here in the States, because that would really help to kind of weed out a lot of the stuff that people end up tasting and getting turned off by because it doesn't taste like real absinthe and it doesn't taste good. A lot of them are horribly bitter and that type of stuff. So so being able to get that could help to maybe better define the category and give consumers a little bit better understanding of exactly what absinthe is. And then hopefully, you know, distillers will continue to work to put together a really good high quality product and again, continue to... Um, to educate the masses. But I think in most cases, the best way to introduce new people to absinthe is through things like cocktails or tasting events, because that way they don't just go into a liquor store, see a bottle of absinthe, which, you know, they aren't cheap. You know, absinthe is a pretty expensive product to produce. um, And consequently, it's a pretty expensive product uh, to sell. And most brands don't come in convenient 375 milliliter bottles like yours do. So, so they're, they're, they're hesitant to drop a hundred dollars on a bottle of absinthe if they don't even know if they're going to like it or not. So those types of opportunities in bars who serve it the right way. And then in tasting events, we'll, we'll give people, you know, a nice introduction. And then hopefully we get some, some more fans who will continue to support uh, the industry itself. So absinthe was one of those things where, you know, 2007, we had a huge rush not a whole heck of a lot of good quality products in the States available at the time. Some, but not a whole heck of a lot. And, you know, you have that, that novelty factor where it's, it's now legal again. And so we saw, you know, a pretty big spike in sales. And then things kind of settled in. But I think the more the United States and the world gets into good quality craft ingredients and in cocktails, which, you know, more and more bars are doing that nowadays, the more we're going to see bars stocking good quality brands of absinthe. And hopefully that also will mean that these bartenders will know how to prepare it properly if somebody asks for a traditional absinthe drip as opposed to just having it in cocktails. But, you know, just kind of getting people to know the right way to do things and and how this is really supposed to taste and how it can complement other ingredients in cocktails, I think is going to help the the industry continue to to blossom over the next, you know, five, 10 years. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's really unfortunate that the first absence out of the gate were were not, most of them were not that great. And so a lot of people got the impression that they don't like the taste of absinthe. And, you know, generations later are still believing some of the things that the, you know, the propaganda against absinthe. It's been 12 years and it's still such a little niche product. And I mean, there's always going to be some of that because absinthe itself is a relatively niche flavor profile. In the States especially, we aren't raised a lot on those flavors of anise, you know, the good and plenty type of flavors, that type of stuff. Yeah. That's much more like a European thing. You know, in Spain and France and Switzerland, they love, you know, their anise cookies and mints and treats and that type of stuff. So they're already familiar with that flavor. Not as much here in the States. 
the same time, even that I hate to use the word bitterness because absinthe really isn't bitter, but maybe astringency is a good word for it. Light astringency. You know, if, if you have anything that's so bitter or so astringent that it makes you want to, you know, scrape your tongue, then that's obviously <laughs> not absinthe. But, you know, even those kind of dry flavors, maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, you know, those kind of dry flavors are really just now kind of starting to become popular, uh, you know, in the cocktail community and that type of thing with, with Amari and, um, you know, and other types of, um, of bitters and, and aperitifs like that. Um, so hopefully, you know, that can, again, help people get used to the, those types of flavors that absinthe has, because it, it is, it's one of those things where you either love it or you hate it. And if, if you see somebody asking for, you know, what's a good low anise type of absinthe? Well, you're, you're, you're not going to have a good time because absinthe isn't going to be low anise. And if you find one that's low anise, it's not going to be absinthe. So <laughs> there's nothing yeah. wrong with not liking absinthe. Uh, you don't need to try to find one that's, that's, that's no anise because there's no such thing. Yes. It's very polarizing. And, you know, I have a lot of people say, oh, I don't like licorice or, oh, it's going to taste like that Mike and Ike's candy. And what I tell them is think of a fresh fennel salad. And that's, right. a, that's a flavor that Americans are, they, we know that. Um, yep. we, ha we have that. And so that tends to turn people around. And then they try it. And I almost always hear, oh, I actually like that's it. Right. That's right. <laughs> so other than the uh, interesting things going on with the Wormwood Society and the upcoming Absinthe Festival, is there, is there anything else that we can look forward to related to Absinthe? can't say much. Um, you know, there's, there's a few projects being worked on right now that hopefully will be uh, a nice surprise for a lot of fans of the absinthe community. But, uh, you know, hopefully again, we'll have that app out soon and hopefully the festival turns out really well because I'd love to make that an annual thing. Um, you've also always got the, uh, the absinthe events in Pontalier and, and over S and there's also now absinthe festivals in Freiburg, Germany and, and a few other places. It's nice to see more, uh, supporters of the category holding these types of uh, types of events. Well, that's an intriguing answer. Looking forward to finding out what else is going on. Yeah, yeah. Should be good, hopefully. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's always a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And I will see you in Middleburg in June. Absolutely. Sounds great. See you then. I'll see you then. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.